Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. Sometimes you have to go backwards to go forwards. Several weeks ago, we ran an episode on New York City's new existing building carbon bill. But this bill did not come from nothing. And in order to translate this legislation to other cities around the country and the world, we need to look at the series of policies that brought us here. Today, we are going to take a step back to dive into the initial steps towards sustainability policy and then look to the future to see how other cities are or can be getting on the road to carbon neutrality. And I don't think there's a better person to take us on this journey than Lori Kerr. Lori is a national leader in urban sustainability policy. As deputy director for green building policy at the New York City Mayor's Office of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability under Michael Bloomberg, Lori helped develop Plan YC, New York's influential sustainability plan, and spearheaded the development of New York's innovative green building and energy efficiency policies. Subsequently, Lori conceived and launched the City Energy Project at the National Resources Defense Council, which is assisting 10 major American cities from Los Angeles to Chicago, Houston, and Atlanta in developing large-scale efficiency projects similar to New York. She is now the president of LK Policy Lab. Speaking of carbon policy, remember to join us on June 27th to 28th at the 2019 North American Passive House Network Conference, which will be at the Metropolitan Pavilion in New York City, featuring presentations from industry experts on cutting-edge strategies for achieving low-carbon, high-performance buildings. This year's conference is gearing up to be the best to date and even includes sessions from my co-host, Rob Aldridge, among other SWA folks. And of course, don't forget to sign up for some of the incredible pre-conference workshops. These will take place on June 25th and 26th. I'll be talking about commissioning, how to make sure your high-performance building actually performs. You can also hear the Buildings and Beyond Acoustical Director, Dylan Martello, and plenty of others. Use the code NAPHN19STARSWA to receive a 10% discount on the standard two-day conference and expo pass. For more info on the 2019 NAPHN conference, visit the show notes page for this episode. So thank you, Lori, for, for being on this podcast with me today. It's a pleasure to be here. We, we um, actually just had, uh, or we had an episode on the, the basically groundbreaking carbon caps for buildings, um, but obviously it didn't come out of nothing. You've done a lot of work over the past, is it uh, 13 years, over a decade, uh, looking at what we should do to kind of get on the path to low carbon. So that's what we want to talk about today. Um, we obviously focus on buildings. Our podcast is called Buildings and Beyond. But can you give us a little background on why New York City uh, has decided to have a, a pretty big focus on buildings or a, at least looking at buildings and energy use and, and what the impact is on the environment? Well, before I went to the mayor's office, I got a sneak peek of the city's greenhouse gas emissions inventory, the first one. And what I saw was really surprising. 75% uh, of the city's greenhouse gas emissions came from energy used in buildings. We didn't know that before that. 
and that really focused our mind. Um, I also did the math on uh, our growth rates and figured out that about 85% of our buildings in 2030 were be buildings that we already had in 2005. So that meant uh, clearly that if New York wanted to address climate change, it would have to focus on its existing buildings. Makes sense. But there were no models. What do you do? The energy codes are all designed around new buildings. Existing buildings, unless they're making some improvement, are allowed to run inefficiently forever. Right. That's just the way it works. So uh, I remember poring over the data and trying to figure out what we should do. And uh, Marilyn Davenport, who was the doyenne of the real estate industry, uh, walked by my desk and, and started asking me a few questions. And uh, I guess my answers were pretty poor because she said, you poor dear, you really don't know very much, do you? It's <laughs> a good way to start out. But we learned a lot, and we did a lot. Um, we eventually came up with the world's first comprehensive plan to address energy use in existing buildings. It was called the Greener Greater Buildings Plan. But we did other things, too. We uh, launched a Green Codes Task Force to green the city's uh, laws and regulations related to buildings. We'd, and we developed a series of policies, including the uh, Mayor's Carbon Challenge to uh, many different sectors eventually. And then we launched the New York City Energy Efficiency Corporation to help with financing. We launched BEEKS to help uh, with training and information. So it was a very broad, broad brush uh, uh, set of programs and policies. And BEEKS is Building Energy Exchange? Yes. Great. I just like to define all the all the acronyms here. Exactly. Great. Um, great. And so, uh, kind of diving in a little bit to that uh, greener, greater buildings plan. You you outline these couple of things. Some of them, uh, or I, I guess, at this stage, it sounds like most of those things are still um, promoting. Uh, promoting good habits, but not necessarily requiring specific things. Like you were talking about building energy exchange, that's educating the market. You talked a little bit about the uh, greenhouse gas inventory. That's just measuring what are we doing here. Um, how did we transition into some laws around what buildings would start to have to do? So um, the Greener Greater Buildings Plan uh, which was our biggest effort focused exactly on energy in, in existing buildings, um, has a couple of features. Uh, about half of it is about information. Mm -hmm. So the audit, the uh, benchmarking right. and the audit piece, which I'll explain, are really about information. And then there are some requirements to reduce lighting energy and to uh, sub-meter um, that are and to retro commission, which are about making improvements. But I want to go back a little bit because um, it's partly what we did and partly how we eventually grappled with this very complex industry. Uh, New York City actually has a million buildings. Uh, it's and they're big ones, little ones, old ones, new ones. It's just. Uh, a very complex assortment, and that's what Marilyn Davenport was kind of getting at. Right. And our big 
uh, kind of key to solving that, at least in the first phases, was when uh, I was looking over the, the data and I realized, hey, wait a minute. Half the square footage is contained in 2% of the buildings. The building's larger than 50,000 square feet. So that's how we should start. And those buildings aren't only a little easier to get to because there are relatively few of them, 20,000 approximately, but they also are a little more sophisticated. They usually have uh, professional management companies in charge. So that seemed like the, the place to start. So. The greener, greater buildings plan is focused on those larger buildings. Okay. Um, and I like, I want to dive in on that a little bit because I think, and potentially based on <clears throat> a recent um, New York Times headlines, uh, but I think there's sort of this misconception that that some that our industry is focused on these big, big buildings, even though you know uh, there is some efficiency benefit to having a larger building with less envelope per interior area, for example. But I think getting to that point of, well, it's actually just easier to address climate change when you're talking about 20,000 buildings covering most of the square footage versus the whole million square build, uh, square feet, well, sorry, min, million buildings that you mentioned um, that, that have all these individual owners and individual points of, um, points of entry and might have, be less cost effective to do anything about. That exactly. I think some of the uh, press coverage on this that seems to imply that big is bad wa was not our thinking at all. Uh, big is good in many, in many, many respects. Density is very good uh, in terms of reduced uh, carbon footprints per capita. So uh, it really uh, was about um, being effective. Right. Yeah. Great. Uh, from a policy point of view. So, you know, one of the things we realized is that, um, you know, you go to buy uh, a refrigerator or a car and you get some information about how efficient that is. But these really huge objects that we have that use so <laughs> much energy, buildings, people don't know. There's no tag on those buildings that tell you whether the building's efficient, even the building operators and building owners don't know. Right. So we felt that we needed to start measuring uh, the, how much energy buildings used, and we needed to make that public. And the idea was that, if, that you can't manage what you don't measure. And so benchmarking, which is the process of doing that measurement, was kind of the uh, foundational policy. We didn't exactly think it would do anything, but we thought, we needed it to build on it. Right. It you turns to out the data. it turns out that it actually might do some things, and and you know in the uh, uh, reports on energy consumption that are, come out every year in New York City uh, from the benchmarking and now the audit ordinances, um, we see about a two percent energy reduction year on year for buildings that consistently benchmark. So it's a correlation, it's not necessarily causal, but it's very promising and it, it accords with data from EPA and from other cities that have passed benchmarking ordinances. So that um, policy may have done somewhat more than we actually anticipated. That's great. But we also wanted to require cost-effective retrofits, even in this first pass. But 
and we so we drafted this ordinance that required that buildings do audits, and then they had to do the package of measures that paid for itself in five years. We decided on a payback horizon at that point. Mm -hmm. That seemed fair. But as we delved deeper, we realized it wasn't fair because building owners would have to pay for retrofits to central systems, but because of a split incentive problem in leases, the tenants would accrue the benefits. So the five-year horizon wasn't realist, it wasn't paying people back. Right. So we had to go back and correct, we came up with the energy-aligned lease clause, which fixed that. And so, uh, so we replaced the mandatory upgrades with a requirement that lighting systems be updated to meet code and that commercial tenants be submetered for their electrical use. Great. And, um, and so how, how did we, did we have any results? What was the, was there any other successes besides um, you mentioned that you saw that even just benchmarking could kind of move the ball forward? Did you see any other successes through uh, the work that you did? I think that one of the biggest successes was the data that we captured. Mm. Um, at the time that we, after we passed the audit ordinance, I started thinking, you know, we shouldn't really let these audits just pile up at the Department of Buildings. Why don't we collect the information systematically and then we can have an electronic uh, database that we can actually study and learn from. And then we brought together all the great brains in New York and created a good uh, uh, matrix of information that we wanted to collect. And um, that's turned out to be a gold mine. We now know not only how well our buildings are performing from benchmarking, but we can look under the hood and see why. And we can see what systems are more or less uh, efficient, we can see where we have opportunities citywide uh, to make improvements. So that, I think, was uh, has been a really exciting success. Another one um, was the Mayor's Carbon Challenge Program, which we originally launched for just universities and hospitals. But over the years, it's expanded, and it's now covering 10% of the square footage of the city. I mean, it's just... Uh, taken off. Um, so 10% of the square footage is participating in the is carbon challenge? Exactly. Wow. And those uh, participants are required to re reduce their carbon emissions by 30%. Okay. So uh, that's been just a runaway and surprising success. And those uh, those participants are achieving those savings, or how is that? That's They're being on the monitored? road. Some have, some achieved them in like five years. Some are on the road. Uh, some of the great success stories have been uh, FIT, NYU. Okay. You know, so those are some of the early players who achieved uh, their carbon emissions very quickly and then signed on to a 50% carbon reduction. So some have gone to the next level. Great. So. I don't, we didn't expect that at all. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I know uh, those guys have been doing a lot, of, a lot of work, especially the universities. We've seen making a lot of movement towards this, these goals, so that's great. And were there any disappointments along yes. the way as well? I would say the audit and retro commissioning ordinance has been a real disappointment. Um, building owners in general saw it as a box they had to check, mm -hmm. and they wanted just to pay less money. So we got to kind of race to the bottom. Uh, in terms of the quality of the audits 
and maybe even the retro commissioning. So, you know, right now there's an effort underway to improve the retro commissioning requirements. I think that can be fixed, and I think there have been benefits for that piece. Mm. But the audit piece, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't put that requirement in. And also, in the meantime, people have developed strategies to tease out more actionable information from audit from benchmarking. Mm. So we don't need to make the building owners go through that trouble and expense anymore, I think. Okay. And um, so I guess there is always this concern with, I'm a little bit going off on a tangent here, I think, but uh, with data integrity from the benchmarking data. So um, how, do you, how do you see kind of pulling out information on building systems from the pure kind of energy data versus getting it from an energy audit or um, some other kind of system uh, of someone actually going into the building and looking at the different systems. Potentially both could have data integrity issues, but um, kind of where are your concerns around that? Um, we studied uh, the data quality issues extensively after the first year of benchmarking. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that there were a lot of mistakes mm -hmm. because people were new at the process. Um, we didn't see any evidence of large-scale manipulation or cheating. Right. Uh, it really seemed to be mistakes and people needed to be better trained. Um, that said, my biggest concern on data quality is not inaccurate uh, submissions or fraud, although I'm sure there's some of that. I don't think it's large scale. My biggest concern is the accuracy of building square footage. Hmm. And I think that data is not good. And it's really important. And I would love to see um, in new laws going forward, particularly if we're looking at a per square foot carbon Metric. cap, right. um, that people actually have accurate square footage. That really is foundational. Right. And it only needs to be done once, but it needs to be done once. Yeah. That's interesting because there's, uh, I was saying to a colleague, even in new construction, it's hard to tell what the square footage is. That's There's six numbers probably on the first sheet, depending on whether you're talking about the zoning square footage or the residential square footage. And so even internally, people might say square footage of a new building, and there's six different answers. So kind right, of nailing but, that down. But EPA has a very specific definition. And the reason EPA matters is that they're the people that uh, created and run the um, benchmarking tool that the city uses. So that definition is the definition we need to be using. Great yeah. point. And so uh, there were some good things, some some maybe things we would do a little bit differently next time. What where do, what are the next steps from, from this? Well, um, five or six years ago, uh, when the Bloomberg administration was coming to an end, uh, I thought, you know, the next big thing would be to, if we want to have a national impact with what we've done here, is to create replicable policies that other cities can use. So, you know, cities are wonderful in that they're uh, politically proactive, they're engines of creativity, but the downside is there are so damn many of them. <laughs> so if they all try to reinvent the wheel, we're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I thought, let's create poli basic policies that cities can adapt, but they have 
kind of a lead-like handbook of you can do this policy or that policy. Here, here are a range of, of policy, proven policies mm -hmm. that you could utilize. So I proposed that we got $10 million in funding uh, okay. through NRDC. And um, cities from Los Angeles to Chicago to Atlanta signed on. That's and that great. program was called City Energy Project. And five years later, it's been re-upped several times. And now 35 cities across America, now including uh, San Jose and uh, St. Louis, New Orleans, they are all pursuing some of these foundational policies. Great. And which of the policies are uh, really taking off among the 35? Do you have a sense of that? Of the biggest uh, uptake is certainly benchmarking. Right. It's the... It, it was required, really, to be part of the program and to get funding. Got so you, you basically had to do benchmarking. And a lot of cities that aren't in this program are also doing benchmarking. Got it. Um, and, uh, and I think I even saw LA is, is kind of going down the path of the carbon emissions caps that we kind of looked at in New York, too. So it seems like uh, there are kind of other cities following the the footsteps or kind of moving forward in a big way. What what have you learned? You, your work was really very much focused in New York City and, and you were working with all of these different cities to develop policies that were replicable. What did you learn in kind of moving beyond New York borders and how other cities are might be different or might be similar? Interestingly, city profiles are surprisingly similar. So in most cities, buildings are the dominant source of greenhouse gas emissions between about 50% and 70%. Okay. Even in a sprawling city like LA, where you might not expect that. Right. Um, the only city I think that falls out of that is Seattle because they have so much carbon neutral electricity. Oh, okay. So, uh, and that varies quite a lot from the national average, which is 38 or 40% coming from buildings. So there really is a city strategy that focuses on buildings, or it makes sense. The other thing that was surprisingly similar is that uh, concentration of uh, square footage and energy usage in the largest buildings. So it might not be 2% of the buildings in all the cities, but it's not more than three or four percent to capture uh, pretty much half the square footage in energy use. So those basic strategies of focusing on buildings and focusing on larger buildings turned out to be, you know, very applicable across most of America's cities. But with like a different square footage threshold by city? Like yes. maybe ours is 50,000? So, so we went to 50,000. LA had to go to about 35,000. LA was not able to get to 50% even with that mm. because they really do have smaller buildings. But of the 10 cities in the initial cohort, they were the only one that didn't oh, really fit that profile that you could fairly easily capture half of the square footage. So I think in terms of differences between cities, of course, every city wants to have its own flair, flavor of what it does. But uh, that hasn't been that dramatic. I think the biggest difference right now is going to be timeline. You know, what has a city already done and where is it now on the path? 
And that really matters because time's getting short. So in New York, we started early. We had the luxury to uh, think and study our, our building stock. And I think other cities don't have that luxury anymore, the ones that are coming down the pike right now. They're going to they probably have to start with the foundational policies, but they're going to quickly have to pivot mm -hmm. to deeper requirements. Okay. And um, so if I'm a mayor then in, in one of these cities that maybe hasn't gotten started, maybe isn't even on your list yet, uh, what would you recommend for, for me? Well, I would still start with the foundational policies, mm -hmm. such as benchmarking, leading by example programs so that the city government is, is reducing its energy, first uh, carbon challenges. Um, those are great in terms of engaging uh, the community. Mm -hmm. um, and in the course of designing and implementing those policies, uh, the real estate community becomes involved, becomes educated. You know, and I just can't emphasize that enough. I think one of the biggest things that we did in New York and other cities are doing to make this work is really creating a community of educated uh, professionals, by and large, who understand the issues and are becoming kind of thought leaders in terms of how to solve them. Um, Would you say that is sort of spurred on by the building energy exchange, or is there are there other sort of policies or things you put in... Uh, that were put in place that kind of moved the industry towards an, an educational? Uh, I would say it's been a whole range of things. Mm -hmm. But primarily, it's been the, the dialogues that have been created. Mm -hmm. So in developing the Greener Greater Buildings Plan, we brought in industry to yeah. advise. In creating the, the, in every single thing that we've done, we've brought in the industry to advise because we didn't know enough. That I mean, quite honestly, we didn't, do it to be uh, to create a community, but I realize in retrospect that's been a great thing. Yeah. So when do when the Department of Buildings wants to um, uh, change the energy code, mm -hmm. it brings in the experts. There's a dialogue. Right. Uh, there's a conversation, and with every single thing that we've done, it's been that way. And you know, all the nonprofits from Urban Green to ASHRAE, to the American Institute of Architects, to Building Energy Exchange. They all have programs. They all have uh, conversations. So that conversation, uh, building that conversation is critical. And so I think any city has to start with the foundational policies, build the conversation, and then they will be in a position to start to require some of these more uh, ambitious uh, requirements like, uh, you know, energy reductions, however they're shaped. Right. I think you're not going to do that without building, um, building support and knowledge about what the capabilities are. Right. Otherwise, it's just frightening. Right. <laughs> right. Know? Sort of retrofit all of this in the dark with no understanding of how buildings work. That could lead us to down the very wrong path for sure. Uh, okay, so if now if I'm an energy efficiency proponent in a city that hasn't gotten started yet or maybe hasn't made a lot of moves yet, um, I know my friend from Australia complains that they're behind us in, in the U.S. even, 
the what what should I do as a proponent to to get started? Is there anything I can do to move the move the industry forward? I think it'd be pretty hard at the individual level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would get involved with a local institution that has some clout, like uh, the local chapter of the American Institute of Architects or U.S. Green Building Council or BOMA, any any one of those groups that convenes. And then I would try to uh, use that uh, that venue, really, to create a citywide discussion. Mm -hmm. And... You know, maybe th that institution could start inviting people from other cities uh, to come talk about what they're doing. They could maybe do programs on success stories in the cities. Uh, they could invite they could invite um, people from the administration, people from city council to come to those meetings. So you have to kind of create uh, you have to create interest. You have to start educating people. You really have to prime the pump. Yeah, that's a great point. And it, it's actually interesting. I think we get stuck in our own bubble in all of the different bubbles that we might be in, whether you're in LA or, or another city or, or New York. I've definitely been stuck in my own bubble before, but one thing that uh, was really interesting for me when we were on the advisory uh, committee for the Energy Code here, we brought in someone from the city of Seattle to explain, because you know, we, we've developed some uh, existing building laws, but actually Seattle's new construction laws are, are somewhat ahead of ours. So we brought them in to, to, to educate us a little bit about, um, about building blower door testing and, and a couple different elements that we were looking at. So um, I think that's a really important point to say that the, there's a global network of people thinking about these things and of cities doing these types of things, and, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Absolutely, and there are a number of uh, programs. Um, the uh, City Energy Project was one, but there's the um, uh, C40, right. which is uh, large cities around the world sharing best practices. Um, there's uh, the Urban Sustainability Directors Network that uh, is a platform for a lot of exchange of best practices across sustainable, urban sustainability policies, but buildings is certainly a big piece of that. And I think there's all, uh, there are others. Right, yeah, yeah great. We'll, so, we'll throw a couple of links in the show notes. Um, so we're, we're sort of, I think, all after, we've talked a little bit about energy efficiency, but after kind of a carbon neutral future, what do you think are, are a few key elements to getting us towards this carbon neutral future? Well, I'm going to stick with the building sector okay. because it's what I know um, and assume that people working on transportation and waste have uh, their own will, ideas. We'll will figure their, their pieces yeah. out. But within the building sector, you know, I think uh, everybody's come to a consensus that there are really big, three big things that have to happen. Mm -hmm. One is pushing efficiency as far as is reasonably possible. The second is we've got to decarbonize the grid. The third is we have to electrify as much as we can uh, the um, uh, fuel use. In other words, we have to get off fuel for heating and hot water as much as we fossil fuel for heating and hot water as much as we can. But um, that's very rational. But um, it's actually a really tall order, and I'm afraid that it's not practical to 
get us all the way there. I think practically we could use those strategies and we could get to maybe 70, 75, 80% reductions. Um, uh, particularly in the colder and older regions of the country. So California or Hawaii, which is already highly electrified, they can probably get to carbon neutrality um, with those methods, and they're probably on the path to do it. Okay. But in places of a country that are heavily dependent on fossil fuels, um, electrifying the tens of millions, I'm talking, Tens of millions of buildings would have to be electrified in that swath of the country that goes from North Dakota to Maine and from and all the way down to you know Virginia uh, or even a little further south. Um, that's going to cost a fortune and it's a Herculean job. You know the other problem with it, the other problem will be in this broad swath of the country is that. Even if we achieved full electrification, can the electrical grid support it without massive infusions of cash in order to grow the electrical grid to, to handle the increased load? So, and adding all the renewables and all these things to get the grid off of uh, fossil fuels as well. Well, I, th I think that maybe is a little bit easier, mm. although maybe not. I'm not a grid person. Right. But... Um, Absolutely, there has to be a lot of storage. I think that goes without saying that we have to decarbonize the grid or mostly decarbonize right. the grid. Um, but it's really the growth of the grid that worries me the most mm -hmm. um, with these new strategies, particularly if we're looking at electrifying vehicles, which mm -hmm. I think we are. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say that we need a fourth strategy, and that, or we might need a fourth strategy in our back pocket, and we should be looking at carbon neutral fuel. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean by this, you know, waste to energy, although that needs to be a piece of it, mm -hmm. and that could be a starting piece, uh, um, like the Newtown Creek uh, wastewater treatment plant that takes New York's waste and turns it into methane, yeah. and now is is selling that methane or using it. But that's a start, but it's not going to be enough, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think, for what we need. Uh, there are scientists working at the national labs and in universities and some uh, entrepreneurial situations that are looking at creating methane from water and carbon dioxide using sunlight or carbon-neutral electricity. And um, right now, of course, it's very expensive. But... Solar energy and wind energy were very expensive. So before we really started to uh, make the policies that supported investment in, in those areas. So I think we should start going down the road uh, with carbon neutral fuels on that, you know, promoting the science, promoting the early technology, and maybe even starting to layer in a carbon uh, a renewable energy standard for fuel. Mm -hmm. So we did that with electricity, and I think it was... So a renewable portfolio standard for fuel means that the grid has to have a certain percentage of carbon-neutral energy. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did it for electricity. I think it helped uh, fund, you know, a lot more... Uh, 
solar and wind, and that brought the price down. So we, if we started to do that with fossil fuel, we could start, of course, with waste to energy, and then expand as these other strategies uh, hopefully are developed. Um, the reason I think this makes sense is that, look, we already have billions invested in our gas grid. Our buildings have billions invested in terms of their, their fossil fuel burning equipment. So, you know, reutilizing that for low carbon or, or no carbon fuel is, you know, in terms of the infrastructure, uh, a very cheap way to do this. So, as I say, I'm going out on a limb. I don't know that this is the answer, but I'm very worried that the other solutions won't get us there. Mm -hmm. So, um, all of that's to say, we, we should be exploring this, but we, it shouldn't be something that deters us from aggressive action on the big three that we know we have to do. Right. And, uh, you know, that's an interesting point. It reminds me, I actually, fun fact, when I was uh, at Columbia, did research in waste to energy. And uh, one thing that people thought about is, well, if we have a lot of waste to energy uh, plants, will it deter people from recycling? Now, I think there's some new information from, from different places. I haven't been in the industry for a decade. But, um, but at the time, when we looked at uh, waste to energy versus recycling in cities across the world, uh, that there was actually a positive correlation. If you recycled more, you also did more waste to energy. So there that's wasn't this negative. Yeah, uh -huh. so that's a little, <laughs> a little yeah. fun fact. I'll, I'll have to uh, see if there's any new information on that and link to the show notes. But um, so that, that was a, a great and, and funny twist uh, at the end there. But in, in terms of um, kind of everything we talked about from everything that you, you know from your deep bench of experience in buildings, uh, what do you think we're going to be talking about in five years when we have you back on the podcast? That's a good question, which I'm going to dodge. But <laughs> I, I, I am going to say that... Um, I'm, I'm more optimistic about us uh, getting to these goals than I used to be. And I think that's for at least two reasons. Uh, one is how, um, how quickly the uh, uh, net zero electricity revolution has moved forward. I just, I didn't see it coming. And suddenly, New York State is in a position to commit to uh, 100% carbon neutral electricity by 2040. That's just fantastic. And yeah, none of us saw it coming. Okay. So that's, that's a great thing. The other great thing is um, I think the political winds have changed on this subject over the last, and over the last year or two. I think you know, the IPCC report really uh, got people frightened in, yeah. in, in a good way. And I think um, AOC uh, throwing out the idea of the Green New Deal, there might be pros and cons, but I think the energy that she spurred by doing that has been a really positive thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of positive movement, a lot of players uh, getting into this who weren't there before, who are, you know, coming up with great ideas and moving this along and a nice fast clip. So Great. it's exciting. That is a wonderful note to end on. And uh, I just want to thank you for being on our podcast today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to Buildings and Beyond. For more information about the topics discussed today, visit www.swinter.com slash podcast and check out the episode show notes. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We provide energy, green building, and accessibility consulting services to improve the built environment. Our professionals have led the way since 1972 in the development of best practices to achieve high-performance buildings. Our production team for today's episode includes Dylan Martello, Alex Mirable, and myself, Heather Breslin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.